Multi-Min Producer Webinar Series, Cash Flowing Through COVID-19 and Beyond, Part 5 of 5. Truly, it's a great honor for me to introduce to you our speaker tonight, Professor Casey Olsen from Kansas State University. Uh, Casey is a professor of Range Beef Cattle Nutrition and Management. He's actively involved in the undergraduate and graduate uh, teaching missions. I praise you and take great pride in the privilege of helping to train the next generation of Great Plains ranchers and farmers. Uh, Casey's research program is designed to address questions that directly affect beef cattle and beef industry profitability. Specific areas of his research include nutritional management of cattle, grazing native range, management of invasive range plants, effects of capital nutrition management on carcass quality and value, and factors influencing grazing behavior. Uh, Casey holds advanced degrees from Kansas State University, North Dakota State University, and prior to coming to KSU, he was uh, on faculty at the University of Missouri, Columbia. Casey is active in the American Society of Animal Science, the Society for Range Management, the American Registry of Professional Animal Scientists, and the American College of Animal Nutrition. He is married uh, to Carly, and his two sons, Charles and Theodore, lives with them on a beautiful ranch in North Lyon County in Kansas. In his off time, Casey enjoys spending time with his family, being active in his church, and coaching youth sports. Casey, I've had a couple of your colleagues actually refer to you as a cowboy with a PhD, so it is an honor to have you on this call, and we're going to discuss how trace mineral nutrition uh, impacts the economics of beef cattle production. Welcome, Casey. Looking forward, my friend. Thank you. That is high praise. Casey, uh, I think just before we start, I would like to, to maybe just take one step back and just uh, highlight, uh, we, we recently had Cattle Facts published for the third year in a row, their, their Cattleman uh, Cow-Calf Survey. And I think the, not really surprising, the three key drivers of profitability on high-yielding cattle operations were the following. Number one was actually calving percentage. And what I found amazing is if you look at 2017, 18, and 19, the differences between lower yielding operations and higher yielding operations from a calving percentage perspective, I would have thought that the, the difference in percentage would be bigger, but it really was a spread of only 3 to 4%, where the higher yielding operations had a typically a 3 to 4 percentage points higher calving percentage. And I think that's not surprising because truly, you know, if you have more calves to sell, it drives dollar revenue quite significantly. Then I think the second thing that they, they found that was, was, was definitely uh, highly correlated to a higher income was just looking at the calving distribution. Uh, what they found was that the more calves uh, operators had arrived in the first 20 or 40 days of that calving season actually made a big substantial difference in the amount of pounds they had to sell at the end. And then the final uh, correlation that they had with, with actually, and this is a little different, it's got more to do with marketing of calves, was really how do you secure the value of the calf. I hate people saying how do you add value to a calf because very often when you go to sale, it's really how do we fight the discount more than how do we get more for it. And the two things that was really common in there in securing the value of the calf was it had to have at least two rounds of vaccines in it, and it had to be weaned 28 to 45 days minimum. 
And I think, you know, if we look at these three aspects, carrying percentage, carrying distribution, and then calf health, finally, uh, mineral levels and mineral status of those animals play a role in all three of those. And, uh, you know, we were talking, uh, the, the last one had, you know, a pre weaning window of at least 28 to, to 45 days. But I think I'm going to kick this off the wrong way and saying, well, you know, the Western U.S. is having a little bit of a hassle with, uh, you know, with, with moisture at the moment. And maybe your ideas, recommendations, and approach to early weaning when we run out of moisture. So I think if we can maybe start there, it's not truly mineral-related, but let's, let's kick off with that. All right. I mean, that's, that's completely fair and appropriate. Um, so... On the, on the day that you decide to early win and you execute with uh, moderate milking cows, you're going to reduce your stocking rate, your stocking pressure by 25%. With most modern genetics, okay, they carry a lot of potential for milk, it's maybe more like 35%. And I'm not talking about anything extreme here. Um, you know, early weaning is something that's typically executed at, at you know, between 100 and 150 days of calf age. That, that type of calf doesn't have any greater health challenges or, or management challenges than a calf that's 210 days old. Uh, if, and if you can remove, you know, the grazing pressure that the calf is, is capable of, of uh, putting on your land, and if you can remove the grazing pressure that lactation causes, I mean, that's the, that's the source of that drop in stocking rate. Now, um, I'm an early weaner in the course of normal uh, business. Uh, I don't let my cows carry calves later than 120 days as a matter of routine. Okay. The only thing you really have to pay attention to is when uh, those calves are removed from the range environment. You know, they're... There are things that you got to think about. You know, a, a young calf is fairly short physically. You need to make sure that your bunks and your watering devices are, are low enough for these young calves to reach into. Um, you know, just at a general point of weaning management, most calves are used to surface water of some kind, in a tank or uh, in a pond or in a creek. You need to make their weaning water look a little bit like the water that they're used to. Um, so early weaning is a fantastic way to dramatically reduce stocking rates, preserve forage, and, and really um, there's an opportunity there that most people don't think about. I mean, a, a calf that's 100 to 150 days old will convert feed dry matter to gain at a rate of about 4 to 1. They're yeah. very economical to, to feed to you know, what I would term a normal weaning weight or beyond that. Um, you know, just for reference for your listeners, the normal dry matter conversion of a yearling feeder steer is in the neighborhood of 6.5 to 1. So there's, uh, there's a substantial efficiency advantage to, to early weaning and just hitting those calves up on feed. Very good. Well, thank you for, for, for you know, sharing that with us. I think now we can revert back to the topic for the evening and, and really discuss, you know, the, the mineral side of things. And I think, you know, I think a, a good point of departure is just looking at, so we're going to spend dollars to buy any mineral supplement. It doesn't matter what it is. 
uh, you're going to invest some dollars into getting that mineral supplement, and then obviously we're going to make it available to cattle, and then we're going to try and elicit some dollar return on that investment. And I think I would like to start off with, with, with kind of when are the most critical times in the different cattle in our operations to get this supplementation right. When are the times that we really need to make sure that we have the mineral supplementation adequate and correct? So if we can maybe start there. Okay, and, and some of this is going to be my opinion, some of it's going to be data. Uh, I'll leave it to your guests to <laughs> sort of filter through which is which. But in my opinion, the most critical times for a beef cow are the uh, the 90-day the period that precedes calving and the 90-day period that precedes breeding, the onset of breeding season, that is. Uh, we need to make double sure that uh, adequate mineral is available uh, during those periods. You know, it's, as you yourself know, Lawrence, from, from your own research, um, you know, the fetus, the developing fetus places a tremendous uh, drain on the dam in terms of her mineral reserves. And, and early lactation, specifically the run-up to peak lactation, which is, you know, four to six weeks post-calving the beef cow, is going to tr- place a tremendous drain on her mineral reserves. So calves, neonate calves themselves are not uh, tremendous consumers of mineral. What they get, they get from mom. Yeah. And, you know, there are strategies, well-thought-out strategies uh, by many researchers for making sure that their, their so-called mineral bank account during those critical periods are uh, is rather full so that withdrawals, so to speak, can be made. You know, in, in the growing calf, just sorry, I'm overstepping my bounds a little bit, but in the no. growing calf, okay, that that critical period of of mineral nutrition, in my opinion, runs from about six weeks pre-weaning um, to you know possibly sixty days after arrival at the feedlot. I mean, it's really typical in our. You know, American version of, of, of raising beef cattle to, to hyper-fortify diets of cattle during, during that period of time. Can I ask your opinion on bulls as well, please? Oh, boy. You know what? Uh, what we've learned uh, through our fairly recent research at Kansas State University is that, you know, in a developing bull, mineral nutrition is particularly critical. Um, so I, I've said this before, I think in your presence, Lawrence, that reproduction is a game of inches. Uh, yep. you know, small, relatively small investments in, in the, the breeding capability of cattle can pay big dividends in terms of reproductive success. And, you know, using technology <laughs> To assure that uh, trace mineral nutrition in growing bulls is adequate has resulted in a significant more percentage of bulls passing breeding soundness examinations at both 10 and 12 months of age because of improvements in, um, well, starting from the bottom up, improvements in general animal health 
improvements in sperm morphology, improvements in sperm motility. Okay, if you look at, at the function of four trace minerals in particular on, you know, just how a, um, a spermatozoa functions, uh, I mean, it, it makes complete biological sense. Very good. Can I uh, kind of switch a, a little bit and, and talk about um, just looking at when we invest into a bag of minerals, just some comments on what should we look out for on that bag that could give us an indication that we're buying a well-balanced, well-put-together mineral versus something that we may not be totally happy with. Well, gosh, that's like trying to unload a bag of cats, Warren. Uh, I think just high level, you know, what are some of the salts that people might put in there that really doesn't help you? Uh, I, I think it's, it's kind of the pitfalls, really, and, and then, you know, kind of looking at balance. Okay, well, in general, um, you know, commercial cow-cow producers don't need chelated minerals. As long as mineral is, is pre-choice oral mineral is fed 10 months or more out of the year, there should never be a, a frank deficiency unless there's some sort of an anti local antagonism. You know, molybdenum would be one. Sulfur in the water would be another. Um, so when you look at that mineral label, um, the, the the mineral element, the metal, is sort of chemically melded to um, an ionic salt. Okay. For example, if you look at a mineral label, you will see things like copper sulfate. Okay. In general, uh, copper, or sorry, sulfate uh, salts are highly, relatively highly available from the ruminant gut, whereas oxide salts are not. And looking at that mineral label, the only critical mineral element generally that comes from an oxide salt is magnesium. Mm -hmm. okay, if you're if you're looking at that label and things are, you know, you've got iron oxide, for example, that's not something you want to be paying money for. They okay, look for sulfate salts. Uh, and another critical question to ask, and I'm not sure you can get an easy answer to this, but a lot of products out there are formulated to meet you know, 125 to 150% of animal mineral requirements in a four-ounce meal of mineral each day. Most cow-cow producers, most feedstock producers, in fact, do not need that level of mineral nutrition. Okay, you, you know, depending on your, your supplementary feeding regime, depending on uh, mineral content of your local forages, you do not need to exceed 100% of recommended daily allowance in a, uh, a four ounce or a quarter pound um, mineral meal for each animal each day. So, uh, you know, bottom, bottom line is here, uh, you know, your product, the high quality product that you buy should be no more than $800 a ton that would be forty cents a pound. Okay, when you buy in bulk, it should it should be no more than a thousand dollars a ton, or fifty cents a pound. Okay, when you're buying it five to ten bags at a time. 
and there are many, many uh, product lines available in America that will that will fit that bill, where most of the minerals are sulfate salts, uh, and the uh, the, con- the recommended consumption level is around a quarter of a pound a day, and that are not going to cost you more than a thousand dollars a ton. Very good. I think that's very helpful. Can I maybe ask you something? Uh, I, I get the question a lot, uh, just on selenium. Why is selenium federally regulated? And, and maybe just a comment or two about selenium legal, legal limits. Why, why don't they allow us not, you know, to just feed as much as we like? Well, uh, th- that explanation is fairly simple. I mean, selenium is a nutrient, but it's also a heavy metal like mercury and cadmium. And the only difference between a nutrient and a toxin is both. So I'm going to say that again so everybody gets it. The only difference between a nutrient and a toxin is dose. Now, the FDA limit for a uh, free-choice oral mineral is 120 parts per million. You'll pick that up right off the label. Okay, if, it's, if it exceeds that, you put uh, yourself and your cattle in jeopardy. Uh, the FDA also says that the limit on individual animal intake per day is three milligrams per head per day. And if your product is 120 parts per million to 90 parts per million, chances are you're going to hit that target very easily. Okay, keep in mind that the National Academies, Academies of Science, Engineering, and Math has set the requirement for selenium intake at just 0.1 part per million. Okay, that's uh, one million of every pound that the animal consumes, and that's that's adequate for uh, testicular function, mammary function, um, immune function, and uh, um, ovarian function, and the animal to be cared for. Exceeding that is very, very dangerous. Thank you. I want to ask uh, just a comment because I know you've actually done some of this research uh, at Kansas State. It's just looking at overfeeding copper. What, 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 what is if, if we put too much copper in, in the diet and it ends up in the rumen? What does it do? <laughs> uh, the, the list is long. So um, you know the, the rumen tends to be an accumulating organ. You know, in a forage-fed animal, what we put in today is not going to pass out of the rumen in general, and on average, for four days. Okay, when the when the copper concentration in the rumen exceeds uh, 40 parts per million, uh, we see a lot of bad things happen. A dry matter digestibility, okay, which is a direct result of fermentation, drops uh, measurably. Ammonia production drops measurably. And if we don't have enough ammonia, we can't make microbial amino acids. Bacterial counts, bacterial counts drop. The, the products of fermentation known as volatile fatty acids that the animal and the microbes feed upon also drop. So, I mean, those numbers are meaningless, but the, the, the message is that when we hyperfortify diets, and this would be oral copper. Uh, when we hyperfortify diets with copper, we can actually be counterproductive. 
dedicate to a to a wide variety of things that matter to us, cow And typically, what would you measure in the animal? So if, if, if we don't have the ability to look inside the rumen, what are we going to see in the animal if that takes place? If we start killing off the rumen bugs and we start reducing, you know, the ammonia and the fermentation process, what do we lose? Well, the, the, if you were a really close observer, the first thing you would see is a drop in dry matter intake. Okay, even if you're not a close observer, when dry matter intake drops off, then body condition starts to fade. Mm-hmm. And when body condition starts to fade, you know, prior to a physically, or sorry, a physio- physiologically uh, critical event, okay, we can start to see things like uh, extended calving. Okay, you can read that as dystocia. We can see things like extended postpartum anesthesis, uh, things like um, longer um, calving intervals. Very good. I want to ask you something else. So we've kind of discussed now what we put in that we really want to get into the animal and what we don't want to overdo in the animal. Now I want to talk a little bit about the things that contribute to us not hitting that target. So one of the things that comes to mind is, is, is distillers' byproducts. Uh, I see a lot of protein cubes that are being fed, you know, really from now right up, you know, especially once we start towards the end of the fall, uh, especially when people are overwintering on corn stalks, they put a lot of these distillers' cubes in as a protein source, which it is really good at. Uh, with just starting maybe with distillers, what are all the different things that may actually reduce the amount of mineral we actually get into the animal system, uh, bringing antagonists into the into the system? So if we can maybe start with the distillers, how does that work? Well, I mean, just as sort of a broad brush uh, approach to distillers, which is a, a great feed, a very useful feed. I'm, I'm grateful to be out of it. Probably you know, three times the, the recommended level, the National Academy of Science and Math recommended level of phosphorus, I mean, which is good for us, right? Because phosphorus is one of the most expensive yep. additions to an oral uh, mineral supplement. Um, you know, calcium is just a little bit below the requirement, but it happens to be three times less than the phosphorus level that's typical of distillers. And, you know, one of the really basic nutritional challenges we have as, as detail people is maintaining a two-to-one ratio of calcium to phosphorus. So, you know, when you're shopping for a, uh, oh, typically they're called balancer minerals that you feed with corn co-products, they're going to have uh, calcium to phosphorus ratios that are, you know, between 18 and 20 to 1 to try and overcome that imbalance. You know, there are, there are other good things about distillers. The, the, uh, the uh, magnesium concentration generally exceeds the animal's requirement. Um, the, the manganese, the zinc, generally exceed animal requirements. And copper is about equal to the animal's requirement. The issue, and I might say also that selenium is about equal to the animal requirement, the issue, though, is that corn co-products, distillers included, tend to be very high in sulfur, which is a potent uh, antagonist of copper absorption in the gut. Um, you know, when uh, there's a lot of sulfur in the diet, 
there's a there's a compound that forms at the gut level called a um, a thiomolybdate that involves both sulfur and um, molybdenum. You know, which which every diet contains, but some regions in the United States have an excess of. Okay, but that's the tendency is to lock up all the copper at the gut level, not allow the animal to absorb it, and it ends up being excreted on the ground. And when when distillers are a significant portion of the diet, you know, people are justified in, in thinking a little harder about how much copper they're supplying to cattle. And those balancer oral minerals that I was referring to, and the companies that make those are aware of that challenge, and they tend to hyper-fortify um, copper in those products. Are there any other uh, ways that we might end up with higher sulfur in a total ration other than just the fillers or corn well, byproducts? We live, in, we live in the Intermountain West uh, in, in an area where the, the groundwater tends to have a lot of um, sulfate, a lot of sulfur. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, in addition to corn co-products, probably the next greatest threat to copper absorption in the beef industry is probably groundwater and the amount of sulfur that that contributes to the diet. Very good. Now I'm going to kind of change gears a little bit and ask you another question. So uh, are there any more recent technologies that can bypass these antagonists? You know, if we look at the oral route, Basically, from the oral perspective, is the only way we, we we really have two choices to go. We can either go to very, very expensive chelates or even newer generation products that uh, at, at least at some level is free of, of tie-up, or we just really force to put in a lot more. But, you know, you just said that, well, there's a threshold where if we go above a certain threshold with copper, we're going to start sacrificing uh, performance. So if we, you know, if we know that there's the maximum threshold with copper, are there any other technologies that we can use that can really give us two things, bypass these antagonists and allow us to get the minerals into the animal in a predictable fashion? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, chelates, and there are some uh, other novel products on the market right now that are they're good at bypassing gut-level antagonisms. Um, you know, I, uh, you and I have been working together for, um, gosh, a, a minimum of 12 years on the injectable mineral solution to this issue. I mean, if you put it underneath the hide or if you put it in the bloodstream, um, you bypass all those gut-level antagonisms. And, uh, you know, there are, there are a number of products on the market, injectable trace mineral products, that can that can take the most expensive and and uh, the most critical um, trace minerals and give them directly to the animal without um, having to pay the tax, so to speak, of, of uh, gut level antagonism. Very good. I think the last question before we open up for uh, uh, questions from the audience is, uh, are you aware of any uh, independent injectable mineral data that actually has impacted 
you know, we when we started this discussion, we were talking about break rate scanning distribution, those type of things that actually make financial sense. Uh, are you aware of any research that has been done that actually show value of the injectable technologies when combined with a good oral program? Oh, I would say, you know, in, in the reputable literature, there's probably upwards of, of three dozen papers, you know, that have evaluated injectable trace minerals for, you know, real-world scenarios for feeder cattle and for um, reproductive cattle. And, you know, frankly, I've been involved in some of that. Very good. I think what I'd like to do at this point is, is open the uh, the lines, and let's take a couple of questions, if you don't mind, Casey. Absolutely. Thank you. Perfect. So let me just do this. If there's anybody that would like to ask a question, please unmute your phone and go ahead and ask the question. Come on, guys. I'm sitting on my porch looking at uh, a sunset and a lot of beautiful grass. I would love to talk to you about mineral nutrition. I might have a little bit of technical difficulty. Just give me one six, one, one, one second here. Yeah, take your time. Perfect. One thing I've learned in the last three months is that technical difficulties with technology are a reality. <laughs> so I think if anybody had a question, you could just let fly again. Please go ahead and ask your question. Uh, is phosphorus uh, uh a needed component in mineral? Absolutely. I'm getting a little feedback. I hope you can hear me. Yeah. You know, worldwide, phosphorus is probably the most oh. efficient nutrient in uh, beef and dairy cattle diets. It's expensive. Um, you know, and, and the, the guidelines that, uh, you know, were issued from above that describe phosphorus requirements, you know, depending on the class of cattle and the stage of production, they're telling us that between 5 and probably 12 grams of phosphorus need to go into the belly of a cow or a steer or a heifer every day. And when that doesn't happen, we get degraded hair coat quality, we get uh, uh, stunted bone development in young cattle, uh, and generally a, a, a really poor uh, level of performance. So it's, you know, phosphorus is one of those areas where you really just shouldn't scrimp. Okay, and if you're, if you're looking to develop a supplementation package, there are cheap ways to get phosphorus in the diet. Um, you know, one of those would be using a corn coat product that are just sort of naturally high in phosphorus. Thanks, Casey. I'm going to open it up for another question.
between using the injectable route and using an oral route? Well, just how quickly does does either or do it? <laughs> yeah, that is a very good question. So, um, you know, when you put an injectable product underneath the hide, you're going to start making the correction immediately. If an animal has a frank deficiency, let's say, you know, you're in an area with um, high molybdenum soils or high sulfur water and you, you know, you have black-headed cattle and you go out and see uh, gray, wiry hair on those cattle. Um, you can correct that deficiency with an injectable mineral, or at least start correcting it uh, with one injection. You know, the, the chelate oral products um, are also purported to be more absorbable from the gut at you know, between two and 500 times um, metallic salts. Uh, but the, the cost is pretty substantial relative to that, uh, you know, that sulfate salt or that oxide salt. Um, you know, a 1,200-pound a, a cow, to, to stay adequate in her trace minerals, requires, a, you know, probably a, a $12-a-year treatment with an ingestible product. And it just makes sense. I mean, when you put that under the eyes, you know it's going to start having an effect. And you know that, you know, the, the duration of that uh, effect is, is going to be, you know, if she's really deficient, she might use it, you know, in a, in a month if she's adequate. When you put it under eyes, it might be there for 90 days. Uh, it just makes sense. And it doesn't, it doesn't cost much. Thank you. I would like to open the lines up again for a question. Let's see if there's maybe one or two more takers, and then we can we can call it an evening. So if there's anybody willing, wanting to ask a question, please go ahead. Dr. Olson? Yes, ma'am. Are there minerals specifically needed whenever vaccines are given for the animal to be able to use that vaccine effectively? Excellent question. Uh, so the, the answer is yes. The immune response is tremendously extensive in terms of you know, basic things like energy available to the animal, but also mineral reserves that the animal has. You know, animals are capable of sort of sedimenting mineral in their tissues. Um, and, again, like a bank account, they, they can draw on those reserves in times of need. When, when we induce an immune response, either through vaccination, or, or uh, exposure to, uh, you know, a, a, a disease antigen. Okay, the, the withdrawal from that trace mineral bank in particular becomes really, really sharp. And our challenge as health managers is to keep making deposits in that bank while that process is going on. 
you know, years and years ago, uh, I did a, a receiving study with high-risk and low-risk feeder cattle. And, uh, you know, the, the treatments were, you know, a readily available source of trace mineral versus, uh, you know, sort of a conventional source of trace mineral and oral one. And what happened, okay, for the first 28 days that these animals were on feed, the animals that got the, the conventional mineral source actually outperformed the, the ones that were sort of hyper-fortified. Okay, that, that lasted for 28 days. After that 28-day receiving period was over, the, the animals that received the non-conventional source were healthier, they performed better, their carcass weights were greater, uh, and they had better quality grade. So there is a an as-yet undescribed uh, mechanism for those trace minerals in maintaining health. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, when those, when those trace minerals are readily available, they get diverted to support um, antioxidant capabilities in the body. I mean, the, the, the four critical traces, selenium, manganese, uh, copper, and zinc, and they all have really critical roles in, in uh, building disease resistance through um, innate uh, antioxidant compounds, body, you know, body-manufactured antioxidant compounds. When those things are available, okay, they're energetically expensive to make, to, to make okay, but they have a direct uh, result on animal health. And the payout thereafter uh, is you know, healthier cattle with healthier lungs, yeah, don't get me started on that one. Um, with bigger carcasses and, and uh, 